Hello, and welcome to Strength and Dignity. This is Michaela Estruth, and you are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Today, I'm going to analyze another article from Ms. Magazine. On their website, this article falls under the section series, and then this particular article comes from their series section entitled, Abortion is Essential to Democracy. This article was written by Elizabeth Hyra actually about a year ago in November of 2021. Elizabeth Hyra served as a lawyer on Senator Kamala Harris's team when she was running for Senator of California in 2016. So because we've covered abortion rather extensively in the past two episodes, even though this article falls under the section abortion is essential to democracy, I'm going to focus more on what overarching themes of feminism appear in this article and where they find their roots and just kind of argue against those instead of the more specific claims of the abortion argument. Although, obviously, we will touch those given the title. So to start out, let's just start with one of the quotes that Elizabeth Hyra writes. She says, quote, It is imperative that we pass laws that actively affirm fundamental equality, such that women have control over both our reproduction and our lives. Otherwise, we remain perpetually vulnerable, end quote. So just some background, the push for women's equality in the late 19th and early 20th century was never a push for bodily equality. So Elizabeth Hyra in this article says that they have to push for fundamental equality, but then she says we must have control over both our reproduction and our lives, otherwise we're vulnerable. That's her argument. But when you go back and study the arguments of the women living in the 19th and 20th centuries who were pushing for women's rights or in the equality movement, they, they understood that there was a biological difference between men and women. God designed us in this way for a specific reason. So the push for equality then in the 19th and 20th centuries focused on equal rights. They wanted an equal opportunity, an equal vote, participation in government, being able to work outside the home. Instances like that, those were the concepts that they were pushing for. They were not pushing for equality of body because they knew that there is biological differences between men and women. So to push for bodily equality was honestly rather ridiculous. Because how could one ever achieve that? However, Margaret Sanger was the key person to change this fundamental thinking of the feminist movement. Instead of pinpointing the problem elsewhere on the idea that men and women are somehow not equal, Margaret Sanger pinpointed the problem on women's bodies and her biology, specifically her fertility. So her basic argument was that women lacked the bodily autonomy of men. That is, after engaging in the same sexual activity, the woman could be left pregnant, but the man could simply leave. Margaret Sanger turned something beautiful, the idea of carrying life and sustaining that life through nine months of pregnancy and then giving birth and having a child, she turned that beautiful picture, that beautiful design that God created into something oppressive. She even, in a way, changed the beauty of sex because 
she was saying that this action is somehow oppressive towards women because they're imprisoned now with a child, but men can just satisfy and then leave. So, as I've said, instead of viewing the carrying of life as a privilege, she viewed it as a punishment. The logic of this argument, however, is rather ironically contradictory because Elizabeth Hyra suggests, these are her words, that women are perpetually vulnerable because they do not have man's freedom or sexual autonomy. That's the word that they use. Sexual autonomy, again, meaning that men are not stuck with a child after engaging in sexual activity. So this contradiction, basically, it, it's implying, this argument is implying that women are actually not equal to men because they're saying that women have to overcome her fertility and her biology in order to gain equality. In order to become equal with men, women have a hindrance that is her body and she must overcome that. So Margaret Sanger's thinking in a way actually lowered women's status and lowered the perception of women because it was saying she is not at birth equal to a male because she may one day have to bear a child and that's oppressive and makes her less equal and therefore she must overcome that through abortion or birth control or other methods. So continuing on in Elizabeth Hybrid's argument, she says, quote, yet the work to secure true equality under the law has never been completed and we must avoid the temptation to be lulled into the mistaken belief that it has. So this is another fundamental idea of feminism, basically that the movement is never satisfied. The consequences of the feminist movement means that they are continually pushing for more and more and more because they're, it's never enough. So first they were pushing for abortion and then they pushed for birth control and then transgenderism and then surgeries. And now even the name, the LGBTQ plus movement, I think there are even more letters that I didn't say that are technically added on to that movement because They've added a plus. They've literally admitted to it themselves that we're just going to keep we're keep pushing and, and it's never satisfied. And that's what Elizabeth Hyra is saying. She says it's not been completed and we cannot believe that it has because it hasn't. Well, based on their logic, it never will be because there's always going to be some sort of unfair or disadvantage that you must overcome. This just reminds me of something that Augustine says in his book, Confessions. He says, our hearts are restless till they rest in you. That's when he's, he's talking, he's recording his, his conversion and the struggle with sin that he had. And he's saying that man instinctively is longing for satisfaction, but he is never satisfied until he rests in God alone. So that's the second point I wanted to make about the feminist movement, just that it is constantly thirsty, never satisfied. Moving along with Elizabeth Hyra's argument in her article, I'm going to quote another section. She says, quote, Despite the visionary work of our foremothers, today's persistent gender equality gap persists. One of the legacies of such damaging legal interpretations Yes, we may have it better than our mothers, but the current state of the law is not enough. So again, it's that idea I've just been talking about playing off is that it, the movement is never satisfied. It's always thirsty. So I'm going to counter with some 
quotes and statistics from one of my favorite authors, Rebecca Merkel. I highly recommend her book, Eve in Exile and the Restoration of Femininity. It's one book that I read extensively during my senior year of high school. It's beautiful. It's very simple. Um, It's an easy, easy read, and it's very clear and very relatable. She's a mother, uh, a wife and a mother, and she, she addresses the the concerns and the arguments of the feminist movement and traces the history of it and then where we went wrong, what happened, basically. So in this particular chapter, she's examining Betty Friedan's argument in her book, The Feminine Mystique. So if you aren't familiar with Betty Friedan, she was essentially the woman, her book, The Feminine Mystique, she essentially launched the second wave feminist movement as we know it. Friedan argued that women were trapped in their homes as wives and mothers and therefore unhappy and unsatisfied. Her book catalyzed, like I was saying, the movement. It came out in 1963, and this basically in step with the sexual revolution erupted in the 1960s and 70s. So Merkel, Rebecca Merkel, she logically concludes that if Betty Friedan's argument was right, that women were unhappy and unsatisfied in the home, then the second wave feminist movement should, since it was addressing that issue, women today should be more happy. So the argument is that Betty Friedan's answer to this problem, which Merkel admits is was a legitimate problem. And she she raises other reasons why it might may have been a problem. But if Friedan did find the right answer, then shouldn't women be more happy today? And Merkel researches this. And she says that in 1963, which is the year again that Betty Friedan's book came out, 21% of American women were on some sort of medication for mental illness or psychology. She calls it psychotropic medication. And then today, 26% of women seek psychotropic medication. And may I just say that Rebecca Merkel published her book a few years ago, so I wouldn't be surprised if that percentage has actually gone up a little bit, especially after the pandemic. So she makes the note that in 1963, it was one in five women who you may say were unhappy or, you know, trying to seek medication to resolve this. And today it's one in every four. So not only has it not changed, it's actually increased. So doesn't that basically imply that Betty Friedan's argument or answer was not the right answer? Merkel also reports that women are more than two and a half times more likely to be on medication than men. That's a little astounding if you think about it. So again, what's the issue? Well, Elizabeth Hyra tries to say, and this is the last quote I'm going to introduce, she says, quote, That is because abortion is not just a health issue. Whether we are willing to let women and people capable of becoming pregnant control their own bodies for health or any other reason is an equity issue. A question of who deserves bodily autonomy and freedom to reach their full potential. Importantly, this is not solely a woman's issue. This quote connects both the ideas that I've been talking about, the contradiction that in the argument that a woman's body is the problem, which therefore implies that a woman is actually less equal or lesser than man because she must overcome the hindrance of her body. And the second point is that the movement is never satisfied. So going along with the never satisfied, 
She's saying women and people capable of becoming pregnant. So let's just be clear, which I like to to be. Um, women are the only people capable of becoming pregnant. Women are the only people whose biology is able to support a child, um, who's even able to have a child in her in the first place. There's no way a man can become pregnant unless his biology is physically changed through surgery. So that idea of people capable of becoming pregnant is, again, that that movement is thirsting for more, pushing for more. Because now if we say women, we're discriminating against people who can become pregnant but aren't women. And that is in itself contradictory because in one sense, a woman's body is oppressive and something she must overcome to become equal with men. But also, people capable of becoming pregnant, we must include that phrase in our arguments or else we're being oppressive to the people who can become pregnant. So somehow women and men are equal and then people who are capable of becoming pregnant but aren't women are also equal. But women are supposed to overcome their bodies to be equal to men. But people able of becoming pregnant should be included in that and they're still equal even though the problem with women is that she can become pregnant it it is self-contradictory the it just crumbles if you really pick it apart and then secondly quote elizabeth hyra again repeating the quote i referred to earlier she says we women deserve bodily autonomy and freedom to reach their full potential so just what i was saying that we aren't at our full potential just in ourselves and who we are. We have to overcome that obstacle. So those are the two points that I really wanted to bring up about the feminist movement, just the fact that it's thirsting for more and that it is in a way saying that women are not equal to men just in who they are because they have to overcome their bodily autonomy. But I did mention, allude to a little bit earlier, that Rebecca Merkel, who I was recommending earlier, she didn't deny that women were unhappy in the 1960s, which is what Betty Friedan was arguing. But Rebecca Merkel showed how Betty Friedan's answer did not solve the solution. So what did Rebecca Merkel suggest that may have been some of the issues? Well, she really went into the art of homemaking. And basically, the Industrial Revolution, you have to remember put yourself back in the time of the 1900s. There were so many things changing as we entered the modern age. Not only did we have an industrial revolution where, you know, now we're driving around in cars instead of buggies. We have electricity. We have running water in homes. We have heat in homes. We have all of these tools and weapons which would become used in World War One and World War Two. I mean, look at the difference between the Civil War, which was in the 1860s, and then World War II, which was in the 1940s. I mean, it wasn't even 100 years apart, and there was vast changes in technology. So not only was there a change in technology, but also, like I just mentioned, we had just gone through two world wars. So our men were out fighting. They were away from the home during much of the 1900s, and a lot of weight fell on the women. So women were not only homemakers but they also had to become providers while their husbands were away fighting and so they were supporting the home and then in the 1960s what happens is all these men are back and so they're trying to find their place in society and the women are trying to find their place and with that 
technology, women's tasks became a whole lot easier very quickly. Rebecca Merkel went into some details just about, well, how much time would it have taken to make a meal in the 1800s versus the 1900s? Because you would have to go pick all the food and that was you were growing and clean it and wash it and even opening cans, like canned food wasn't really a thing until later on. And so, uh, well, I mean, women canned their own food, but like going to the grocery store and just buying a can of food wasn't really practical in the 1800s. But that's what became popular in the 1900s. And so women's time really shrunk in what she was doing and pouring into cleaning and cooking at home and providing for the family because of all of these very helpful, but in a way harmful tools, because it was basically telling the women that like, oh, we're going to make your job way easier. There were tons of ads, women's helper or mother's helper or something like that. Um, And yeah, they made things a lot easier, but it also stole away the some of the identity of that hard work and that provision for your family which very much is an identity and it's a beautiful thing to provide for your family but when it becomes scoffed at because oh now you have all this help of course I mean who wouldn't begin to pick herself apart or become unsatisfied or frankly just become bored if she's doing all these tasks very quickly so that was what Rebecca Merkel was saying is basically the idea that Betty Friedan was talking about, it wasn't that it didn't exist. It's just that her answer to saying the home is oppressive and women's bodies are oppressive and we must escape is not the right solution. Instead, what is the right solution? So I don't want to spoil her book because I cannot say it as well as she does in the book. But she basically says that the the root of the issue was that women were being painted in a completely different light and weren't recognized for their contribution. I, I'll just give a little, one more little example. Women, there were magazines. If you look at magazines from the 1960s and 70s, it was very much women in a dress with lipstick on and heels, but working in the home and like playing cards or something. And so her role was really devalued and and not thanked and not praised as the Lord does in Proverbs 31, saying women are strong and dignified and a woman who provides her f- for her family and a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Well, that was not happening. And so therefore their identity was really robbed from them. So what I would say is, what is the answer? It's it's praising women in whatever they're not, not in a prideful way. Oh, they deserve praise, but recognizing their contribution either in society or in the home, whatever she's doing, that what she's doing is good and it is necessary and it's important. It's very important instead of disregarding it. And I think that really relies in the church of just speaking out and, and encouraging both our men and our women in the roles that God has placed them in and what beauty that is. So let me just end with this Bible verse, just going back to the idea of women not being satisfied because yes, yes, that's very true. She was not satisfied when her role and her responsibility was devalued. But also I believe that our ultimate satisfaction, as Augustine says, is in the Lord. And when we're seeking that, we must rest in him. So the verse I've decided for It's from Psalm 62. It says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My might, my rock, my refuge is God. 
So again, that Proverbs 31 idea of strength and dignity and the glory of woman. And both this passage, Psalm 62, also applies to men that our glory is found in God and we are only satisfied in him because he's made us for himself. Thanks for listening to Strength and Dignity. I'm Michaela Estruth, and you are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.